What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, happy Wednesday to you. Welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you have a question about the Catholic faith, or if you'd like to explain to us uh, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic, well, love to talk with you today. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, and we do have listeners really all over the all over the world, here's a, a, f- a special phone number just for you. You'll want to dial one, and then two zero five, two seven one two nine eight five. And of course, you can always send us an email. The address ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Gabinski, our phone screener. Rich Jesse is handling social media today. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there right now. Just put your question in the comments box. Rich will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio and off we go. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you, my friend? I'm doing decent. Thank you. Are you still in your lunchtime lentil rut? Well, I wouldn't call it a rut. I'd call it a very healthy pattern. It's a happy rut. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so all, all the variety in my diet comes at dinner time. Okay. So it's like, which cruciferous vegetable will I eat tonight? Got it. So we're going to lead off with a Carl Sagan type question today. This is from Frank, who says, Dr. Anders, the observable universe is estimated to contain two trillion galaxies. Each galaxy, on average, is estimated to contain a hundred million stars. So, since God created all of these, is it possible that there are other worlds similar to Earth that, following their creation by God, had inhabitants who could have fallen, like Adam and Eve, and therefore needed redemption? And if so, would Christ have assumed their bodily form and become their savior also? And finally, do you think that our earth is totally unique in the economy of salvation in the universe? Thanks, Frank. Yeah, Frank, thank you so much. I appreciate it. If this had really been a Carl Sagan question, we would have had to throw the word billions and billions. Billions and billions, there. that's <laughs> someplace. right. Uh, right, so first of all, is it possible that God could create another world with with rational sentient beings created in the state of grace that have the capacity to fall and and could stand in need or in benefit of redemption sure god can do that he's anything there's nothing logically impossible about god doing that um do i have any reason to think that god did that no not particularly and there, there was a view, and I don't think this is determinative, but Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologica poses the question as to whether there's only one world. And he was of the opinion, yeah, and he, he meant like habitable planet with rational sentient creatures. That's what he means by world. And he thought, no, there's only one. He had arguments to the effect why he thought that was the case. I don't think those are determinative. Uh, but there's nothing in the Catholic tradition that, that uh, suggests we should believe that there are other worlds with uh, with with spiritually fallen creatures and a plan of redemption for their salvation. Uh, my own personal opinion, if you ask me, do I think there are other worlds, other planets? I have absolutely no idea. 
um, I think that it's I wouldn't be a bit surprised if I found if we found uh, uh, inhabited planets with with uh, with life on them. That's kind of redundant, isn't it? Inhabited planets with life, yeah, a little bit. Um, and uh, I would be surprised if we found uh, uh, inhabited planets with rational sentient beings like ourselves, like humans, that uh, that had a a religion of redemption and atonement uh, and a doctrine of incarnation. That that would surprise me. And the the Christian doctrine of the Trinity and the incarnation does seem to suggest a unique place for the human person in the cosmos, right? Um, and so I would be I'd be surprised if we found like you know the second person of the Trinity becoming incarnate in a astral crocodile, for example. Mm. You know, I mean, I, I I don't think that would be very likely. Uh, but uh, you know, we, could we find um, you know space kangaroos? Maybe so. Okay. Well, Frank, thank you for your mind-expanding uh, question there. Let's go to this one from John in Winchester, Kansas, listing on Sirius XM. He says, in a recent show, the issue of married priests has come up. The answer was married priests or married men cannot become priests. Yet, it's my understanding that married Episcopalian priests were allowed to come into the church. How is that possible? Well, you weren't listening to this show, or if you did, you misheard me, because I never said that married men couldn't become priests. I said that priests couldn't become married men. That's it. There is a big distinction. Yeah. If you're married, there are circumstances in the Catholic Church under which you can be ordained. If you are ordained, and either you're single or your wife dies and you become single, then then you're stuck. Yeah, you can't get done. one and done. You can't yeah. get married again. Uh, but certain married men can become ordained to the priesthood in Catholicism. The ordained person can never add a wife to the picture. He mentioned Episcopalian priests. Yes, and what did he say about the Episcopalian priests? He said, it's my understanding that married Episcopalian priests were allowed to come into the Catholic Church. Oh, they can come in all day long. Whether they'll be ordained to the Catholic priesthood is another question. Ah. It's a possibility that they can be ordained, right? It's, 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 it's a theoretical possibility, and we do have married Catholic clergy who came in from the Episcopal side. Uh, but, but, but just fair warning, yes. if you're a married Episcopal priest out there and you become Catholic— there is no guarantee that you will be ordained in the Catholic Church. It's possible, but it's not a guarantee. You're not promised ordination in the Catholic Church if you're a, if you're a, a married Episcopal priest. We're going to roll in this uh, very similar question from Cheryl. My nephew says it's concerning to him that Catholic priests are forbidden to marry, considering the passage that speaks of it being wrong to forbid marriage. All I could say was that not all Catholic priests are unmarried, and they are not forced to become priests. It's their choice. What can one say about this subject, considering that the New Testament says it's wrong to forbid marriage? The Church doesn't forbid marriage. It made marriage a sacrament. Yeah. Right? And, and most, uh, most Catholics are married, or at least that, that's the, the presumed vocation. They may not actually achieve it or not, but, I mean, uh, we have a lot more married Catholics than we have, than we have celibate clergy. So it's not Catholics. Don't, don't forbid marriage. Uh, but if you are a person who is called to celibacy— Mm-hmm. Then, uh, in the Latin rite of the Church, the priesthood is open to you. Okay. Cheryl, thanks so much uh, for your question. And uh, if you have a question that you'd like to send us for a future show, the address is ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Hey, phone lines are open for you right now. And in a moment, we'll be talking with Joyce in Columbus, also Greg in Port Orchard, Washington. Uh, Ted is also uh, online here, getting screened right now. Two lines open at 833 833- 
288-EWTN for call to communion. It's called to communion with Dr. David Andrews on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN. We have one line open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We'll get to the phones in just a second here. Today's a big day. It's the feast day of St. Vincent de Paul, and EWTN's religious cover catalog has you covered. We have for you today the St. Vincent de Paul statue along with a free DVD. Let me tell you about the statue. It's a beautiful 16-inch handmade statue of St. Vincent de Paul, crafted of fiberglass and crafted with all the tradition brought from Italy 80 years ago. He cradles a sleeping baby on one shoulder, the other hand rests on the shoulder of a little girl as she leans on him and gazes upwards. This item is imported from Peru. And as I mentioned, with each purchase, you'll receive a free DVD copy of Church Universal, the St. Vincent de Paul Society. EWTN's own Father Joseph Mary meets with members of the Society of St. Vincent de Paul to discuss how their volunteers offer person-to-person services to those in need. So it is a twofer for you today, the St. Vincent de Paul statue and a free DVD available right now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning today with Joyce in Columbus, listening on the Blowtorch St. Gabriel Radio. Hello, Joyce. What's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Hi, Dr. Anders. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I love the show, and I feel like I've learned so much. I am a former Protestant, and I'm becoming Catholic. And my question, maybe it doesn't seem like a Catholic question, but I want to hear a Catholic perspective. I feel like I am, in, am intelligent, and I feel like I have knowledge, but I just feel like I lack so much in wisdom, especially in, like, highly emotional or personal situations. And I, I tend to respond with just a, a gut feeling. Mm-hmm. They might be well-meaning. I might, you know, I'm, I'm well-meaning and I'm trying to do the right thing, but sometimes in hindsight, I see that it lacks a deeper wisdom. So how can I have or, or grow in wisdom? What an amazing question. I really appreciate it. And I would say that one of the wisest things a person can do is say, I lack wisdom, right? Know thyself, Socrates told us. And this, this, I think that is, I'm not saying that trivially, I think it's one of the most important aspects of a wise person. Um, and, and you mentioned that you're reasonably intelligent. It's important to note that the scientific study of wisdom has shown that intelligence and wisdom are not perfectly correlated. And in fact, it's kind of a J-shaped curve, meaning that if you're, if you're very low in intelligence, you're probably going to be low in wisdom. But people that are at, like, Mensa-level genius intelligence often lack wisdom as well. And mm. it's not hard to think about why that would be the case, because if you're just an absolute genius, you're accustomed to always being right and being the smartest guy in the room and, and, and not wanting or needing other people's counsel. Mm-hmm. And really smart people can get wrapped around the axle of an idiosyncratic theory, and they can be so persuasive to others and themselves that they, they lose track of the fact that they're viewing the world through this lens, however brilliantly it's been constructed, but this artificial lens that they've constructed and sold to themselves and other people that ends up 
uh, obscuring their vision rather than clarifying it. And that's the way ideology works, right? You get some theory about the way the world ought to be organized, and you have some hypothesis, some thesis uh, that you can that you can make a compelling case for, and then it ends up becoming a blinder that it, it, that frustrates your ability to see anything else. And so that that ideological thinking is definitely not the way to wisdom. Although many intelligent people go in for that, conspiracy theories are kind of like the the down market version of the of the ideology. You know, you get if you just grant that uh, you know that everybody in Washington is a lizard person from outer space and <laughs> everything else follows you know logically. But that the first hypothesis, of course. Uh, it, the postulate isn't logical. Uh, so what do we do uh, to actually grow in wisdom? Well, um, St. Thomas Aquinas, when he writes about the virtue of prudence, which is deeply related to wisdom, divides it into a bunch of different parts. And the one that really grabs my attention is uh, docility is absolutely critical for, for growth and prudence. Because, see, the opposite of the arrogant blowhard who knows everything or the, or the brilliant ideologue, um, those guys can't take counsel. They can't listen to contrary information. They can't, they can't suffer rebuke. Um, but a really wise person knows that they don't know and, and seeks out counsel and is teachable. They're docile to instruction. So the, the, that's, that's the first thing, I think, in, in growth and wisdom is an honest assessment of your limitations and, and deliberately seeking out a counsel from other people. So step two is like the first one. If you want to grow in wisdom or prudence, then you spend time with wise and prudent people, mm-hmm. right? Um, and uh, I, you know, I think you you have to have a kind of uh, basic familiarity with the states of human life, right? If you're going to make prudent choices about what to do in particular circumstances, you have to have wide exposure exposure to particular circumstances, and that's that's something that you you can't easily cultivate except through time. And, and putting yourself out there to be involved with different kinds of people in different states of life in an attitude of listening. Um, uh, obviously, you, you pointed to an aspect of foolishness, which is the impulsivity, the emotional impulsivity, which is a whole nother dimension. Mm-hmm. Um, and a person could have wide experience and be docile, but still be impulsive. And so the, the ability to control one's emotions, St. James talks about the value of holding one's tongue. Right, and and he says if you the person that can hold his tongue is a perfect person, and uh, I'm I'm bad about this, but uh, but you know a resolution to speak less and listen more uh, is an important part of that, and that that you can that helps you avoid other forms of impulse impulsivity, and then of course habits are formed, virtues are formed through habitual practice. Appreciate your call, Joyce. That's a great, great, great call. And uh, glad that you're listening to us there in Columbus. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Hey, that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Called a communion on this uh, Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN. We're going now to Port Orchard, Washington, talking with Greg, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Greg, what's on your mind today? Oh, hi there. Thanks for taking my call. That was great. I love hearing that, Dr. Anderson. Arrogance is a symptom of ignorance. But my question is, Alcoholics Anonymous has saved so many lives and created an endless amount of miracles. One of the best gifts I feel that our country has given the world. But Sister Ignatius, a Catholic nun, was pivotal in creating and the success of that. I'm wondering, do you think she'll ever be canonized or recognized officially by the Church? 
Um, yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Well, recognized, yes. Canonized, I don't know. I don't. I don't know of a, of a cause for her canonization. Doesn't mean someone hasn't proposed it. Hmm. Um, and so I can't say. I can't say that she won't be. And look, sometimes people get canonized centuries after their death. That's so true, anything's yeah. possible. I, I don't. I mean, clearly she did an enormous amount of good for the world. I, I don't deny that for a second. Um, did she have what we would call heroic charity? I don't know. I don't know enough about her life. I mean, I have I have a biography of her sitting on my shelf. But, but do you? Yeah, I do. In fact, but uh, uh, you know, there's a, there's a pretty stringent process for qualifying for canonization. I don't know if she meets all the criteria, um, but she's clearly an exemplary person in many respects, and and we're all grateful for uh, mm-hmm. uh, the value that that many addicts have derived from Alcoholics Anonymous and from the Twelve Steps generally. And she definitely played a, a very critical role in that. My my knowledge of of uh, Sister Mary I. Uh, was that it was really her initiative to have alcoholics classified as uh, suffering from an illness and not just moral weakness. Yeah. And in fact, I think in the hospital where they where she and and uh, Bill and 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 uh, what was the Bill, other fellow? Bill W. Bill W. Yeah. And, and who's the other guy? I can't remember. Don't, the name. don't know. Oh, Bill in the other when uh, Bill W. was was treating people, she would uh, she was the intake nurse at the hospital, hmm. and if she wrote down alcoholic, they wouldn't let them admit them. So she would. Well, this is—I don't know. This might keep her from canonization. I think she would <laughs> she would flub the intake form and uh. come up with a fake diagnosis so they could actually get them a hospital hospital bed and start treating them. Wow, fantastic! Hey, appreciate your call. Thanks for it. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Denver now and talk with Ted, listening in Denver on his Roku device. Ted, what's on your mind today, sir? Yes, sir. I'd like to know why God allowed the Jews to kill in the Old Testament, and He forgives it forbids it in the New Testament? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question, but I believe the question has a false premise, and that is that the Old Testament permitted uh, various forms of killing, and the New Testament, obviously the Old Testament permitted them, and the New Testament forbids them. That's not true. That That's a false distinction. Uh, the New Testament specifically commends the power of the sword as, uh, as, as one of the things that brings civil order and protection to society. And um, and and there's nothing in the New Testament that forbids killing per se. Now, murder, of course, is forbidden in both testaments, but killing as such is not forbidden in either one. And of course, the the church itself has a doctrine of just war, and uh, and under rare circumstances, the death penalty. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, both of these things are part of the Catholic patrimony going back two thousand years. So, I, I I think the premise of the question is mistaken. All right. Well, we hope that is helpful for you. Thanks so much uh, for your call today. Call to Communion here on EWTN. A couple lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Let's see here. Let's go to Betsy in Dearborn, Michigan. Betsy is listening on the great Ave Maria radio. Hey, Betsy, what's on your mind today? Hi, a couple of things. I just wanted to let you know... Um, on January 27th, I had called you um, asking advice or your opinion about my dad, who was baptized Catholic, but then he was atheist, and if it was okay for him to be buried in the Catholic Church, well, I'm very happy to say that he had a conversion in June, and he died on the assumption of the Blessed Mother. So there is a blessing in that in his conversion. Well, and that's wonderful. A, yeah, and he had a beautiful, beautiful 
beautiful eulogy. It was it was amazing. Wow. The question I have for you is, um, at my church, Divine Child in Dearborn, we are going to have a relic of the Apostle St. Jude Thaddeus on October 13th. How do I explain to my non-Catholic friends the importance and why we venerate this relic? And as just an aside, talking about married priests and whatnot, one of the priests at our church was a divorced priest with two daughters, and my one son took his daughter to prom. But that's a whole other story. So anyways... Yeah, thanks. So relics and the married or, or celibate clergy. So in terms of the relics, so uh, the, the the value of relics in the life of the people of God is something attested to in sacred scripture. So if you go back to, say, Second Kings chapter 13, for example, we find the relics of the prophet Elisha being credited with miracles. Acts chapter 19 in the New Testament, we see the apostles making use of what, we'd now, what we would now call third-class relics. And so the, the, their use in, in Scripture is attested. Um, uh, archaeologically, we have evidence of the Jews venerating the, uh, the tombs of the ancestors, the tombs of the fathers. In earliest Christianity, you literally can't go anywhere in the ancient Christian world without finding the veneration of saints and their relics. Uh, it's ubiquitous. Uh, and this is, I mean, the secular historians recognize this, but uh, church fathers do as well, so much so that St. Jerome could write in a letter to Vigilantius that it's not only the bishop of Rome, but it's the bish- all the bishops throughout the world concur on this practice. Literally, there was more controversy in ancient Christianity over whether or not Jesus was God than over the propriety of venerating relics. It is, you cannot separate Christianity from the veneration of saints and the relics until you get to the 16th century. So anyone who claims to have any kind of continuity with the ancient church um, cannot do that and throw out relics. So why? What's the significance of relics? Well, going back to the Old Testament again, we see that sanctity in the scriptures is thought to be something that pervades not just the soul, but the body. And so when Moses looks on the face of God, or the back of God, I should say, in the book of Exodus, he comes out and his face is shining, so illuminated the people of Israel can't see him. can't look at him. He has to put a veil over his face. And, um, and the same explains what goes on with Elisha, the prophet whose relics were powerful. The idea that the Zadokim, the holy ones of God, were so sort of pervaded by the Shekinah glory that their very bodies had a sort of a resonance or a sort of remnant of that. And when you add the Christian dispensation and the awareness that we are joined to Christ's body in baptism, St. Paul can tell us in 1 Corinthians 6 that if you sin in immorality against the body of a Christian, it is like you're sinning against the body of Christ. And, and he means that in a quite literal way. And, and we share in Christ's work of redemption. So Paul can write in Colossians that he fills up in his own flesh what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. And the way Gregory of Nyssa, 4th century doctor of the church, put it was that we venerate Christ and his members, right? So if we do charity to a member of the body of Christ, then we do charity to Christ. Mother Teresa's whole spirituality was based on this idea. What you do to the least of these, my brethren, you do unto me. Um, And when we seek their prayers and intercessions, when we venerate them, we're venerating Christ and his members. And rather than detracting from the unique mediation of Jesus, it really shows how the grace of Christ, the person of Christ gets 
is the means of redemption distributed through all, all these members by way of sacred baptism. So it's a beautiful doctrine that underscores the dignity of the body, our belief in the resurrection of the dead, and our doctrine of the union of all Christians, literally, our literal union in our bodies with the body of Christ. Appreciate your call, Betsy, and thanks so much uh, for sharing that good news regarding your late father. And uh, thanks for checking in and listening on the great Ave Maria Radio. In a moment, we'll talk with Juan in Houston, also Myra in Dallas, Maria in Boston, Santo in Utica, New York. Two lines open at the moment, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Andrews, 833-288-3986 on Call to Communion. Glad you're with us for Call to Communion here on EWTN. Hey, congratulations going out to a longtime member of the EWTN radio family, Archangel Radio, in Mobile, Alabama, celebrating their 13th year with EWTN. Congratulations to Ellen Taylor and her great team there at Archangel Radio from all of your friends here at EWTN. All right, back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Juan, a first-time caller in Houston, listening on the EWTN app. Hey there, Juan, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, Hi, thank you for taking my call. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Anders, and thank you, Tom, for the wonderful work you're doing. Uh, sharing the knowledge. Thank you. Uh, my question is regarding natural evil, um, and especially to explain to my non-Catholic relatives, uh, did original sin affect the whole creation or just humanity? And I will hang up and listen to your question. To yeah, your thank you. I really appreciate the question. So St. Paul writes in the book of Romans, Uh, chapter 8, verse 19 and following, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its enslavement to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know the whole creation has been groaning together as it suffers together the pains of labor. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So St. Paul clearly teaches that, that the cosmos, not just the human person, will be renewed at the coming of Christ, and that the creation groans, as it were, in expectation of that day. Now, what are we to make of that? Are we to conclude that the sin of Adam affected a physical change in the universe? Well, I mean, I suppose one might make that case exegetically. I think it might be a hard sell scientifically. So here's how I would apply that verse today for myself. You know, Pope Francis wrote an encyclical some years ago called Laudato Si about the care of the environment, and he's He's imminently to publish another one, Laudate Deum, which is a follow-up to his first environmental encyclical. And so this is something that's on the mind of the Holy Father. Clearly, rapacious and selfish and and narrow-minded individuals can make a bad use of nature for their own own self-aggrandizement or ideological purposes 
uh, and do harm not only to nature and to the environment, but to their fellow man, because nature is the common good of the human race and the common patrimony of the human race. And mm -hmm. so there's clearly a moral dimension to the degradation of the environment. And the, uh, the renovation of the human person uh, will definitely uh, put an end to that. Yeah. Juan, thanks so much uh, for your call from Houston. Quick question here from Lovak, watching us on YouTube today. Lovak says, for the baptism, for a baptism with one godparent, does the godparent must be the same sex as the child? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. According to the Code of Canon Law, um, there can be only one male sponsor or godparent and only one female sponsor or godparent. Um, or one of each, uh -huh. but you can't have two men and two women. You got to have either a man or a woman, or a man and a woman, right? Okay. Uh, there's nothing in the code that says that um, only a man can be godparent to a male child. Doesn't okay. specify that in the code. All right, very good. And uh, one more from uh, social media: Furman watching us on YouTube in Lokichar, Kenya, in Africa. Uh, Furman says, "Nice to see you again." Can a Catholic nun? Uh, animate the mass. I'm not sure about the word right. animate. Right, so if you mean celebrate, can uh, the nun be the celebrant? The answer to that question is no. No, only an ordained priest can celebrate mass validly, and only men can be ordained to the sacred priesthood. Very good. Thanks for checking in from Kenya in Africa. Let's go now to Myra, a little bit closer here, first-time caller from Dallas, watching us today on YouTube as well. Myra, what's on your mind today? Hello, thank you for taking my call. Um, my question is, can you explain how Catholics view St. Joseph? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Well, uh, they don't all see St. Joseph the same way, and there are different traditions about St. Joseph in the Church. Uh, some of the traditions maintain that Joseph was a younger man when he was betrothed to the Blessed Virgin. Other traditions suggest that he was a much older man and may actually have been a widower at the time that he took Mary into his house. And those actually obviously have sort of different implications for how you understand the Holy Family. What they have in common is the idea that St. Joseph was the guardian of the Holy Family, and in, in that respect, the, the Church has made him sort of the, the custodian of the entire Church. Mm. He, he is, with respect to the Church, much like he was to the Holy Family, you know. Um, and so he is an incredibly exemplary figure. He is a, a, a model of purity, um, and uh, uh, and of that paternal care for the family that is the goal should be the goal of every father. Uh, speaking personally, love him. He's a good guy. Ask for his prayers every day. You know, I I tell you a funny story about Saint Joseph. Um, so you know, we have all these Marian apparitions. Yes. Mary shows up. And she says all kinds of stuff in various places, and there aren't a lot of Joseph apparitions in mm -hmm. Catholic history, but there are a few. And I was talking, a number of years ago, I was talking to a French friend of mine. He said, oh yeah, we have a famous pilgrimage site in France where St. Joseph showed up. And really? I said, well, did he say anything? He said, yeah. He said, dig here, you'll find water. Oh my. Man of few words. Practical guy. Yeah, for sure. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Santo, a first-time caller in Utica, New York, listening on TuneIn Radio. Santo, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, Santo and Utica, are you there? I'll tell you what, why don't we put him on hold, if you would, please, Charles, and we will go then to uh, Maria in Boston. Maria, what's on your mind today? Hello, thank you so much for taking my call. Um, so I was calling, I went to Mass two weeks ago, I'm a Creole Catholic, I went to Mass two weeks ago, and I did not go up for 
communion because um, I hadn't gone to confession yet. And I had mortal sin on my soul. So I was watching people coming back from communion, and I saw this person there that I hadn't normally seen at that Mass at that particular time, which is fine. I noticed that she took the host out of her mouth and put it in her bag. And I didn't know what to do. I sat there dumbfounded, and then I thought, did I really just see that? Or am I, maybe it was a tissue or something, but it wasn't. I saw her take it out of her mouth in the back, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't, I didn't know, should I stop her? I saw her walk out immediately. She didn't go back to her pew. So I didn't, I, I don't know. My question is more, what would I do in a circumstance like that? And being a Catholic my whole life, that really has bothered me and shook me up, because I I. I know that growing up, normally the priest would put it on your tongue. Nowadays, people put it on their hand. And I, if it ever fell on the ground, it was like a really big deal if that ever happened. So I don't know. So my question is, what should I have done about that? Should I have stopped her? What should I have done? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So uh, first of all, you didn't do anything wrong. So don't, don't go hard on yourself. This woman did do something wrong. And there is no good reason, there's no valid reason, and there's no good reason for someone to take the host out of their mouth and place it in a, in a bag and leave the church. Uh, I can only think of superstitious reasons for doing that. So someone might think they wanted to do that because maybe they wanted to reserve the Blessed Sacrament at their house or something that they're not authorized to do like mm, that, and that yeah. would be wrong. You can't do that. Even worse— there are occasions, there have been, there are situations in which people who are not Catholic will sneak into a Catholic church to try to steal Holy Communion and perform acts of blasphemy against it. So, so for all of these reasons, uh, the church is pretty careful about not wanting that to happen. And, and the appropriate thing to do is, you know, grab an usher, chase her down, and demand that she consume the host yeah. before she leaves the premise. Yeah. yeah. Now, I mean— you're a little bit stuck because, I mean, all you can do is make the demand. You can't physically force someone to do that, right? That would be against the law. Um, but you can you, you can clearly chase them down and say, you're not permitted to do that. You know, consume this thing right now. And, and these days, we can all pull out our telephones and start taking video, you know, yeah. so we know who it was. We could inform the priest later. But, yeah, that absolutely should not happen. Hope that's helpful for you, Maria. Thank you so much uh, for your call and for your concern. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Tomorrow morning on Catholic Connection at uh, 9 a.m. Eastern, Teresa Tamio talks with our very own Father Mitch Paqua all about what is a synod. And what does it mean for the average lay Catholic? A lot of talk about synods these days. We haven't heard that very much lately, but uh, it is certainly in the news these days. Find out all about it tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. Eastern, with Teresa Tamio on her wonderful program, Catholic Connection, right here on EWTN Radio. Let's uh, try one more time here for Santo, a first-time caller in Utica, New York, listening on TuneIn Radio. Santo, are you there, sir? Yep. Go right ahead. Okay, thanks for taking my call. Uh, Zach, I, I was stuck on a, a question I heard from a Protestant friend of mine that I couldn't answer. Um, and uh, having been into the, uh, having been an evangelical Christian for 35 years and very deeply into the Bible, I thought I never in all my years heard that question before. I, I'm a Catholic on yourself. He said to me, how come you guys say that Christ died in three days and he rose again from the dead? But uh, when he died on the cross, he told the uh, the uh, 
one of the uh, guys who's being crucified that uh, that he would uh, he would be with him this day in heaven. Uh, how would you how do you explain that? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. He doesn't actually say you'll be with me in heaven. He says today you'll be with me in paradise, and so the identity of paradise is somewhat in question. And the Catholic position is that we say in the creed that Christ descended to the dead, um, descended to hell, but we don't mean the hell of the damned. What we mean is the abode of the righteous dead of the Old Covenant who are awaiting the coming of the Messiah. And so St. Dismas is the name we've assigned to the good thief on the cross, would have been one of those righteous dead of the Old Covenant who would absolutely have been with Christ, who descended to the realm of the dead at his crucifixion and, and remained there until his soul was reunited with his body on Sunday morning and he physically rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, you know, at, at Pentecost. Yeah. Or before Pentecost, rather. Santo, Santo, thank you so much for your call. Here's Paul in Washington listening to us on Sirius XM Channel 130. Paul, what's on your mind today, sir? Well, good afternoon. My question is, are my prayers, my rosary, I say every day for the saints, the suffering brothers and sisters in purgatory, truly efficacious? As I read um, last night in John, where Jesus teaches, reconcile with your brothers on the way to the judge, lest the judge throw you in prison. And it got me to thinking, are our prayers um, really efficacious if those in if Jesus says those in prison will serve or pay every last copper in one scenario or every last shekel in another scenario? So that's my question. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So there, there's there's almost nothing better attested in Catholic tradition than belief in the efficacy of prayers for the dead. Right. I mean, this is this is something that goes back to the very beginnings of the church and is commended by pope and council and father and sacred tradition and by the constant witness and practice of the faith for 2000 years. So, uh, in fact, uh, I believe the Council of Trent anathematizes the position that prayers for the dead are inefficacious. Right. So this is a this is a dogma of the faith that prayers for the dead are efficacious and, and, and commendable and should be offered. Uh, now, I think the question you raise about the parable presses the parable too hard, too literally, as a, as an exact correlate to the doctrine of purgatory. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that's what the parable is about. I mean, I think you could, you, could, you could bring the parable into discussion about the logic of purgatory, but it's not a parable about purgatory per se. Okay. Is that helpful for you, Paul? Very much so. Thank you so much. Appreciate your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Pierre is watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Pierre says, Dear Dr. Anders, can you expand again on why the passage of the Bereans is no proof for sola scriptura? Yeah, thanks. So the, the, the Bereans, first of all, are open to the message of the Apostle Paul, unlike the Thessalonians who, who rejected what he had to say. And they're commended for their openness to the apostolic message, which they which they examine and they critically test. Right, so okay. they're they're not exam they're not praised because they adhered to the Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura. They're praised because they were open to the message of Saint Paul and they tested it. Mm. Now, the Catholic Church absolutely thinks that you should test a message. We don't we, we don't we don't advocate blind faith around here, 
right? So if, if I come with the message or the bishop comes with the message or the pope comes with the message, yeah, you're to critically examine it so that you can make a, a, an informed human consent, intellect, will, uh, the whole person to the objective teaching of God. Uh, now, what, what you need to get a Protestant doctrine of Sola Scriptura off the ground, I mean, really, if you, want to, if you really want to understand, Sola Scriptura is the position that there are 66 books that God intends to be the sole rule of faith. Mm-hmm. That, that's the Protestant doctrine. Well, right off the bat, the Brians didn't have that list of books. Because 27 of them, at least 27 of them, had not been written at the time the Bereans searched the Old Testament. Yeah. Secondly, the Bereans would have searched the, the Septuagint version of the Bible, not the, the Hebrew scriptures that Protestants typically advert to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but what you would need to get the doctrine of soul scripture off the ground is a revelation from God indicating, here are the 66 books that I intend to be the church's rule of faith. And there is no such revelation. Now, the, the doctrine of Sola Scriptura teaches nothing is to be admitted as an article of faith unless it can be proved by the express words of the Bible. But Sola Scriptura is presented as an article of faith. Therefore, it must pass its own test. If it's to be a doctrine of the Christian faith, then it should be attested in Scripture. And Sola Scriptura is not attested in Scripture. There's no place in the Bible or anywhere else in divine revelation that says... Here is a list of 66 books. I, God, intend these to be the church's rule of faith. Mm. In fact, Jesus gives a very different rule of faith. He gives us the teaching church as our rule of faith when he said to the apostles, go into all nations, make disciples, and teach everything I have commanded you. And up here, thanks so much uh, for your question today. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Rusty now, a first-time caller from Fort Worth, listening on the Guadalupe Radio app. Hey, Rusty, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, Thank you, both for your ministry, uh, you're building up the kingdom of God. So my question is, I'm an RCI instructor, or an RCI candidate asks us if they commit a mortal sin and they intend to go to confession, but, but they uh, get hit by a truck before they can get to confession, are they going to hell? And the second question related is the church teaches that if, if uh, the only people that go to hell are those who choose to go to hell, so does, does committing a mortal sin sin constantate a person choosing to go to hell? Thank you. I appreciate the question. The first question, the answer to the question is not necessarily, right? Um, Because you can be reconciled to God by an act of perfect contrition outside of the confessional. So anytime you're conscious of grave sin, and if you're convicted in your conscience, you should make an act of perfect contrition and and get right with God. Then you should go to the confessional. So the confessional is not there to limit the distribution of God's grace, but to focalize it, if you will, to focus it in on a sacrament where we have an objective sign that grace has been offered and received. It doesn't mean outside the sacrament there's no grace. It's not what it means. It, it means that within the sacrament we have that objective, tangible, sensible sign that, that grace is definitely on offer. So it's there as a, a help to us, not as a hindrance, not, not some sort of you know, a hoop you have to jump through to go to heaven. Hmm. Um, now, that doesn't mean we should be cavalier or presumptuous. If you commit a mortal sin, by all means, repent yeah. and ask God for that grace and forgiveness. But, uh, but no, absent the confessional, you're not, you're not necessarily condemned to hell. Um, does an act of mortal sin constitute a choice to go to hell? Well, not formally, right? I mean, like if typically, like if a man commits adultery with a woman, 
his intent is to commit adultery with the woman. It's not like he's thinking, guys, I'm trying to figure out a way to go to hell. This looks like a good way to do it. You know, go, Hell is not his intent. Right. His intent is the physical pleasure of the act. Sure. Um, hell may be a consequence of that. Uh, but, it, yeah, to be sure, if someone is, is in the state of mortal sin, by definition, they have cut off the life of grace in their soul. Now, it is important to note that not every gravely immoral act alone constitutes a mortal sin. There are three conditions for a mortal sin. Number one, it has to be gravely wrong. Number two, it has to be committed without compulsion. You have to freely choose this thing. And three, you have to understand at some level that what you're doing is wrong. Yeah. And so I, I sometimes will use this illustration. We know that murder is wrong, gravely wrong. But we would judge uh, differently someone in, say, modern society who, who, who you know, plotted an assassination um, compared to maybe someone who lived in a primitive culture that knew only the law of vendetta and had no judicial system. Uh-huh. In that particular cu- culture, um, their, their subjective relationship to the moral law is very, very different. And so I'm not saying that it isn't a mortal sin in that case, but I'm saying we'd have to be judicious about passing that judgment. Unfortunately, we don't have to. It's God is the one that's ultimately going to judge souls. Rusty, thanks so much for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Larry now in Lawrence, Kansas, listening online, EWTN.com. Larry, what's on your mind today, sir? Um, Yes, thank you for taking my question, Dr. Anders. Um, I just found out yesterday about a book... Uh, that early Christians uh, read and apparently had a lot of stock in that I'd never heard of before, and it's called The Shepherd of Hermes. Yep. And I wondered if what you could tell me about that. Uh, sure, I appreciate the question. So uh, the, 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 the Shepherd of Hermas is part of a collection that today is known as the, the Apostolic Fathers, and they are the earliest non-canonical Christian writings, earliest writings by Christians outside the New Testament. In the second century, The Shepherd of Hermas was a very popular work, and there are a few places where it was included in lists of canonical scripture, though it didn't make it in at the end, right? So it it really isn't a canonical text. Um, Should you read The Shepherd of Hermas for historical purposes only, right? Because the, the doctrine of Hermas was ultimately rejected by the church. One of the teachings of the Shepherd of Hermas was something that came to be known as the Doctrine of the Second Repentance. And we also find it in Clement of Alexandria, and we find it in the, in the uh, ex-Catholic writer Tertullian. He was Catholic and he left the Church. The Doctrine of the Second Repentance held that you are only allowed one post-baptismal sin, and that you can sin and do penance and be reconciled to the Church once after mm. baptism— but after that, you're on your own. If you do it more than once, you get kicked out of the church. And, and, the, and, and the Pope, it was Pope Calixtus at the time, ruled that that was contrary to the will of Christ. You said we should forgive 70 times, seven times, right? Um, so, uh, you know, Hermas, like a lot of the Apostolic Fathers, was an extremely moralistic text um, and did capture a mood in the church that we also find echoes of in the book of Hebrews, where, you know, Hebrews really gives a pretty dire warning about those that commit apostasy and says that there's no repentance left for them, and this kind of language is in there. Um, and that's what inspired this movement in second-century Christianity, but ultimately it was, uh, it, it, was, it was rejected by the Church. So I would read it, but I would read it with an eye only to the historical question, not, not, not for theological insight. 
Larry, thanks so much for your call. We're going to close on this fascinating question here. This is from Katie on Facebook. What is the Catholic teaching on swearing in line with the use of these words, which I personally would call like third cousin of um, uh, swear words like gosh or geez or OMG or what the heck or holy cow? considering the origin of these words. Also, the Jewish brothers who use the name YHWH in respect to God's name. Thanks, KD. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So I am not aware of, like, the official Catholic line on heck, holy cow, gosh, and geez. Okay. Um, I think that uh, in practice, these are pretty mild terms, and most Catholics would who, who use them would use them deliberately to avoid the 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 more severe version right all right right and uh and you know i, I may think a lot of languages have this kind of convention in there where there's a very common swear word and some come someone comes up with a kind of cute alternative I, uh-huh. I learned about one in french the other day that really got got me tickled there's a word that i won't say in french because it's a dirty word but okay. it starts with the letter p and i found out that many french people instead of saying the bad word that starts with p will say punaise which means bed bug <laughs> <laughs> okay that's kind of cute, you know. Instead of saying "her," they go, "Oh, bed bugs." Oh, that's funny, you know. And uh, and so I, 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 personally, I don't have a problem with it, and I'm not aware of any kind of official teaching that would that would forbid you using that kind of language. Um, now, in terms of YHWH, I mean that's a that's a Masoretic tradition. That's a mm-hmm. rabbinical tradition not to pronounce the Hebrew name for God. Uh, th- that's certainly the scriptures themselves don't enjoin that uh, that restriction. And I, I don't think it need to uh, need to constrict constrain Catholic practice either. So I don't think there's anything objectionable in attempting to pronounce the the name of God Yahweh that we find in the Bible. It may not actually have been pronounced that way. Uh-huh. We don't really know how it was pronounced. Um, I had a a, a rabbi <coughs> a Hebrew professor in graduate school that said it was probably something more like yeah yeah, but oh, okay. we don't know. You know. What, a, what an interesting question here. It reminds me of a woman we knew back in Minnesota, a very pious woman, and uh, she would sometimes say, Oh my Godfrey, which is, you know, it's like, I'm going there, but I'm not going there. Right. I think I'm going to stick with bed bugs for the time being. I like bed bugs, Dr. David Anders. Thank you, sir. Thank you. We do this program Monday through Friday here on EWTN Radio, 2 p.m. Eastern for our live broadcast with an encore of that show at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Check out the podcast 24-7 by going to EWTN.com slash radio. Click on the word podcast and you are good to go. On behalf of our great team here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Thanks for joining us. See you tomorrow on the Thursday edition of Call to Communion. Until then, have a great day and God bless.